Now that is a great way for us to begin our worship time together uh, today. I'm so thankful for all the children and uh, families who work with us to put that uh, together. Our children here at Calvary reciting through Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. So whether you're young or maybe not so young, uh, the, the thinking and memorizing and a reflection upon scripture is so helpful. I think it, I think it helps every aspect of your relationship with Jesus. Uh, knowing and memorizing scripture helps your prayer life. It, it helps um, uh, you as a witness for Jesus. It helps in sharing the gospel and loving other people and being a fruitful part of the Lord's uh, church. And that particular passage of scripture, Romans 5, 1 through 11, has been really important, meaningful, and helpful for us in these days. I mean, think again for a moment about what the scripture says, that, that suffering produces endurance. So I want to begin this morning by encouraging you that in this really unusual season that we find ourselves in, it's not just a, a time to try to endure in, in terms of just, I just want to get through it. But it's a season where God can produce something in us. I love how many times that passage of scripture uses the word produce. God is producing something in us as his people. That hardship and suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And it is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ that motivates our worship time together. Now, our worship times... Uh, are so incredibly important for, uh, for us. In a season of uncertainty, uh, one of the things I'm asking God to help me again and again with in these days is increase my confidence in what is certain, and at the same time, Lord, help me to put less and less confidence in what is uncertain. And that's what I pray our worship times are. Whether it's Sunday, whether it's Wednesday, whether it's communion, what, what, whatever, uh, by God's grace, uh, we're allowed, whenever we're allowed to be together, that that's what God's doing. Increasing confidence in Christ, decreasing confidence in things that are uncertain. Well, just a brief note about our worship times uh, moving forward. I know there are a lot of questions about um, what that will look like and what that will be like, and, and I want you to know before the end of the service, in fact, uh, towards the end of our time together, I do want to give you a few details uh, that we're working through and working out uh, about how we will meet together uh, in the future, Lord willing. Now, if we've learned anything in these months, it's that the future is unpredictable. Uh, so we're making prayerful plans that we'll share, uh, knowing that there's so much that we do not and cannot uh, can control. So as we outline some of those plans, again, let's affirm as a church family, we're going to be patient with one another. And whatever plans we do happen to outline, let's know that those plans themselves may need to be adjusted as we go. I'm so grateful for uh, the flexibility and kindness that you've uh, demonstrated in these, uh, in these days. In fact, it, uh, the most common uh, statements I hear from you, our church family, are, how can we help? Know that we're praying for you. And then, of course, the statement I hear a lot is, I really miss us being together. And so we take those three. How can I help? I'm praying. I miss being together. We're, we're going to try to weave those three uh, things together and pray that this worship service is helpful. It's spirit-led, and it is fruitful and exalting to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so grateful that you are joining with us uh, and just as the children have already reminded us, God has demonstrated his love for us. And so let's pray together as we begin and pray in light of how God has demonstrated his great love for us. It's when we were weak, Father, at just the right time, when we were your enemies, you reconciled us to yourself through the death of your son. And Father, when I think about that, I say no matter what the day holds, no matter what is coming our way, whatever it might be, it's not going to be greater than what you've done for us in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So I pray for my church, Lord, that you give us grace to, uh, that, that you're producing endurance in us. And you're molding and shaping the character of your people in these days. And what's really being produced in us ultimately, more than fear or anxiety or frustration or impatience, is you're producing in us the hope of the glory of God. So as we sing and study your word, let this be an hour or so that increases our confidence in what is certain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I love both of those songs that we've sung together this morning. And, and as I was uh, singing and worshiping the Lord, in particular, uh, from In Christ Alone, the phrase, on him every sin was laid. My soul needed that. <laughs> my soul needed that reminder. Every single one of my sins has been put on Jesus Christ, and he has atoned for them. He's removed them from me as far as east is from west. And we're studying through the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to invite you to join me in Mark chapter 8. Now the Gospel of Mark is obviously written by John Mark and the primary uh, source, the primary eyewitness uh, for the Gospel of Mark is the Apostle Peter. And so I just want to remind you uh, that Peter had some moments in his life that he regretted deeply. Uh, probably at the top of the list he regrets deeply when they were asking on the night Jesus was betrayed and just hours before he was crucified, aren't you one of his followers? And uh, three different times, Peter says, no, I am not. And then Mark himself, you'll recall when he was on a mission trip with Paul and Barnabas, and when the going got tough, Mark went home. Every sin on him was laid. It's a gospel of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when I'm asking you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, a Holy Spirit inspired scripture, but the vessels that he uses to do so in the, in the witnessing and writing of the gospel of Mark are two people who had deep regrets. And that might be true of your life as you come to the gospel of Mark uh, chapter 8. Maybe you've got some days uh, that you wish you had back. Uh, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only hero, the only righteous one is Jesus. And in Mark chapter 8, I want you to know if you are holding the hope diamond itself in your hands right now, you would not have something more valuable, more precious, uh, more to be gazed upon than Mark chapter 8. Uh, the eighth chapter of Mark is the halfway point, so to speak. There are 16 chapters in Mark, and so we're at 8. We're at the halfway point, and it's a pivotal moment that comes in Mark 8. It's sort of to think about if the Gospel of Mark were a piece of music, uh, we've been building up to an initial crescendo. That's a very hard word to say, by the way. Uh, and that's going to come in Mark 8. It's going to be Simon Peter's confession that, Jesus, you are the Christ. And then after that confession, Jesus is going to uh, say some things that are so important. In fact, I really believe this. We're not going to get to that section where Jesus talks at the end of Mark 8. Uh, but I believe for many in our church family, God is going to do a work of wrecking and rebuilding as you think through the, the truths of Mark 8. I'm really hopeful, I'm really hopeful that nobody who's watching regularly is going to be able to go through Mark 8 and life is going to sort of ho-hum, go on as it's been going on. Now, human beings are very adaptable. But I'm really hoping that two months into this unusual season, what's not happening in your life is that you've made some adjustments, uh, changed around your schedule a little bit, and now have adapted in such a way that it's sort of a form of normality has come. Friends, these are not normal days. And God is not seeking in these days to do something small. I believe... Once again, we are being given an opportunity right now of sober repentance. Some things really do need to change. So I'm hopeful that right now what's not happening in your life is an adaptability to just sort of normalcy. Well, there's some things that need to be torn down. And I'm talking about in a dramatic and permanent way within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to know that God's not reckless. He's not tearing things down. 
without the desire and plan to build some things up. We'll see that in Mark 8. And for our study this morning, as you stand for the reading of Scripture, I'm not going to read as much as we're going to study. I'm actually just going to read what will be the last verse in our study. We're going to study Mark 8, 1 to 21. And I just want to begin by reading Mark 8, verse 21. You'll see that. Jesus asked a really important question And then we'll study through all the events that bring him to ask that question. So let's read together. Mark 8, verse 21. He said to them, so his disciples, do you not yet understand? Let's pray together. Father, I pray, I pray that we're getting some clarity in these days about some things we really do need to understand about you, about ourselves, about the days in which we live and about what is to come according to the scripture. So use Mark 8. I pray that the word is alive and active among us for our great eternal benefit. I pray by your Holy Spirit you give us a sense of urgency. Not of anxiety in these days, but a sense of urgency that again I'm praying again and again that you will build confidence in what is certain in this life and the life to come while at the same time bringing needed and necessary lack of confidence in our souls about what is most uncertain uh, and what we don't need to build our lives on. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to walk through Mark 8 uh, this morning, and we'll see some things really clearly, I pray, by God's grace. Uh, But as I I was studying through Mark 8, this scene from my childhood kept kind of popping in my mind. It's when I was in the third grade and I was at Lloyd E. Allman Elementary School right there on Rayford Road in Fayetteville, North Carolina in Mrs. Maudlin's class. And one of the very first days of class, uh, the the number of students were sort of broken down into uh, fewer numbers and we had what was called reading comprehension where 10 or so students would get in chairs in a semicircle in a portion of the classroom. We would meet with Mrs. Maudlin while the rest of the students uh, worked on some other assignments with the teacher's assistant, and then we would rotate, so to, so, so to speak. And uh, we're in the semicircle, and uh, Mrs. Maudlin is at the center, and we open up our textbooks that we've just been given, brand new books. I've always loved a brand new book. Still do. And we opened up to the very first story, and Mrs. Maudlin read the story to us. And once that brief short story was over, there was a list of questions to test our reading comprehension. And so Mrs. Maudlin asked the first question, and I looked down at my textbook, and there written in black ink was the question, and below it written in blue was the answer. And so she asked the question, And I've always been an introvert, and in particular, when I was a child and in the third grade, I I was not one who was going to raise my hand to answer any question. And so I'm just kind of sitting there, and I've looked down, and there is the answer to the question written in blue, and I'm just waiting for one of the more extroverted and outgoing students to answer, but none of them are answering. And so finally, kind of sheepishly, I raised my hand and had, had read the answer in blue a couple of times, and so I just regurgitate what I had read, and Mrs. Maudlin says... Great job, Brandon. And so I sat a little bit higher in my chair, and she reads the next question, and politely I wait for somebody else to answer. So I look down, and again, written right there in blue is the answer, and and I look around at the other students, and they're all kind of squinting in concentration, but nobody's saying anything. So I cautiously raise my hand again, And the teacher looks around at the other students and then calls on me. And I answer, and her eyes get wide and big. And she proclaims, Brandon, that is so insightful. And so I'm both flattered and very, very confused. And I could feel the shift in the semicircle of students as they now feel a little bit ashamed by my shining brilliance of reading comprehension. And I'm trying to keep a lid internally on my rising sense of pride. Ask the third question. I've already determined I'm not going to answer this one out loud. No one wants to be a show-off, right? So another student, they do raise their hand and they ask the question. But I can tell on the 
Ms. Modlin's face that that's not the right answer and I'm thoroughly confused because the answer is written right there in blue why did that student give another answer other than what's written and so in spite of a large portion of me saying don't raise your hand my need for affirmation overcomes and I raise my hand and I glance down at the page and, and, and kind of quickly read the answer and I look up expecting to see wide-eyed wonderment on the part of Mrs. Modlin but she has a perplexed look on her face and she asks me if she can hold the copy of my textbook. So I hand it over. She looks down at it, and she begins to sort of chuckle and laugh. And she says, for all in the semicircle to hear, oh, I see, I've mistakenly given you the teacher's textbook. And the answers are written right out, and you've just been reading them. Now, I had been operating under the assumption that everyone had been given a copy of the book the same as me. I didn't know that I had a book unlike all the others. And so as quickly as in my own eyes I had ascended to academic brilliance, the crash was all the quicker. So then she assigned me a new copy and I spent the remainder of the third grade not saying a word. We're going to walk through Mark 8, and you're going to see some people in Mark 8 who are so certain they know all the answers. And then we're also going to see a group of people in Mark 8 who you feel like they should have known the answers by now. And what Mark 8 will do for us, what the Word of God will do for us, is help us know where we ought not to be proud in our self-righteousness, but that because of Jesus, there are some things we can be confident about knowing about him so again just so we're together if you've got mark 8 there and you just glance through it we're going to see a scene of jesus uh, miraculously feeding another large group of people he's going to have an interaction with the pharisees and then he's going to have a conversation with the disciples and all of these scenes are leading us up to jesus uh, hearing from peter that proclamation that you are the christ so one way that we can uh, come about our study this morning is we're building up to the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ. So these scenes this morning are steps necessary to be taken to get to that point. Or another way of, of, of looking at it is if, if someone doesn't believe Jesus is the Christ, here are the most common barriers to that belief. So let's begin here, or continue rather, in Mark 8. Uh, verse 1. Let's read this first scene together. It says, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there uh, uh, were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he went into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. We've seen together in our, recent, in our most recent studies through the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is greater than disaster, he's greater than demons, he's greater than disease he's greater than death itself we've seen most recently that uh that that jesus is extending as it were his kingdom among all the nations and and now we have him feeding another crowd now the first time in the feeding of the five thousand, the the crowd gathered there was primarily jewish in this scene it's primarily gentile That Jesus does a great work that he's done before. So this a sermon is entitled Slow Learners, 
And the three points that I want to make from the passage are all things that we should learn, but most often are slow to learn. So here's the first one, is this, Jesus alone can sufficiently provide what you need, and he can do so again and again. Jesus alone can sufficiently provide what you really need, and he can do so again and again. Not only do we tend to be slow learners, but we're slow learners about the most important things in life. That's why we need to be reminded again and again, and sometimes again and again and again and again, amen, of what is really important and sort of the basic truths of life. Hey, every parent on planet Earth knows what it's like to have to tell your children something again. Please do not eat in the living room. I don't know how many times I've said that and said it again and again. Or please do your homework in a timely manner. Or please wait until everyone is seated at the table before eating. Now, in the same way that as parents we have to remind children things again and again, how much more, how much more is it true that God has to remind us of some things again and again? We are terribly forgetful. Sin has made us terribly forgetful about the most precious things. So I look forward to communion Sunday evening. Jesus said we have to gather or we should gather together for communion. Why? To do this in remembrance. Remembrance. Why does he say to remember? Well, if not for the fact that we're so very forgetful. I cannot explain to you why I can remember so many things that are unimportant. I cannot tell you why I can remember who won the 1993 NBA Western Conference Finals. It's Phoenix over Seattle in seven games, by the way. And yet at the same time, the same time I'm so forgetful about the fact that God is in control and I'm not. That Christ is the king and I'm not. That God is good and full of grace and full of kindness. I am such a slow learner, but thankfully, I have such a patient and compassionate teacher. Well, what we've just read from Mark 8 in these first 10 verses is so similar, isn't it, to the feeding of the 5,000. So so Jesus here is again affirming sort of a lesson we've been seeing uh, by repetition here in Mark 7, that Jesus has come, his kingdom is not for a nation, it is for the nation's. And all the nations are to be included. And Jesus provides for the Gentiles in the same way with this miracle that he had provided previously for the Jews. Now, you would think that the disciples would be clued in by now, right? I mean, the same situation, the same scenario, people needing to be fed. You would think that it would be really easy. Hey, he's done this before. No problem. He'll be able to do this again. But the disciples are hard of heart and slow to learn, and that makes them exactly like us. One of the things I want to emphasize from this first scene is this. That Jesus has done something before, and now he does so again. Now, as I uh, studied and prayed this week in preparation for this message, I don't know how to say this other than that I really felt impressed of the Lord to say to those listening that if Jesus has has done something before, he can do it again. So if God has done a deep work in your life, before. I mean, maybe there's a time in your life that you walked closely with the Lord. And your heart was devoted to Him. And He did a deep work of drawing you near to Him. But for whatever reason, you're in a season of drift. I want you to know that if He did it before, He can do it again. If your spiritual life has become dry or or dull, he can bring, he can bring fresh awakening. If in the past God has brought help to your marriage during a hard 
difficult time, he can help again. If you'll humble yourself before him and seek him, he can bring help again. Or perhaps it's been your experience that God has lifted you up out of the ditch of a dark pit of habitual sin. And this morning, or whenever it is that you're listening to this message, you find yourself right back in that pit. Even though you promised yourself you'd never go back. Hey, if God brought you out before, he can do so again. But you are going to need to turn to him and look to him. I think one of the worst lies we can believe is that God may have done it before, but he can't do it or won't do it again. Look at the scripture. I have compassion. It's not I had it then, but I don't have it now. It's not, oh, I could pull that off then, but I can't pull that off for this crowd now. And look where they are. They're in a desolate place and maybe that's where you feel like you are you're in a place that's desolate spiritually or you feel like you're in a dry place spiritually look what it says i have compassion on them and i love the phrase at the end in verse 9 it says there were four thousand people and he sent them away now in the original rendering in the greek it's not that he just sort of dismissed them the phrase literally is he liberated them Sent them away, meaning he sent them away unburdened, and not only unburdened, but full or satisfied. See, all of us, all of us have a soul that needs to be satisfied, and you'll never have a satisfied soul apart from Jesus. See, he sees their hunger. He sees their need. He provides for what they need out of his own abundance and power. And when they leave, they leave liberated and full. So let me make you a gospel Bible promise. Wherever, wherever you go for your soul's satisfaction, if it's other than Jesus, you'll never leave satisfied. And most assuredly, I tell you, you'll never leave liberated. You'll instead leave unsatisfied and still burdened and shackled. I think it's a great uh, picture for us here that he provides for them bread It's daily bread. You cannot, cannot, cannot satisfy today's hunger with yesterday's bread. It won't happen, much less uh, last year's bread or 10 years ago. So you need daily bread. The bread from last year may have been warm when you ate it, but you need today's bread for today's hunger. So you're created Uh, in such a way that you need ongoing dependence upon the Lord. Some of us approach walking with the Lord like filling up your gas tank at the service station. And you go in there and you fill up and then you leave from there and you'll come back when you need to be filled up again. But that's not how it works in walking with the Lord. You need daily bread. You need daily dependence. You need Him regularly. I want you to know some good news. He's he's available for that. His grace, he's made himself accessible. Now, I think that one of the things that prevents us from going to him for what we need, his power to overcome sin, his help in the midst of our relationships, uh, his, uh, his power for our life, is that there is this little fault that percolates in it. He's kind of tired of us by now, tired of us asking for the same things again and again, tired of us dealing with the same things again and again. And I just want you to take the truth of Jesus from his from the scripture. He's not lacking compassion or care or concern or power. What I love about this uh, uh, miracle of this feeding is it's the same as the last. There's left. There's some left over at the end. Right. One that the Syrophoenicians faith, the Syrophoenician woman's faith. She said, if I come to your table, there's more than enough. There's more than enough. And some of you need to hear this. You got to start clinging to the promise that there's more than enough in him. He's not exhausted. He's, uh, his, his resources. He's not holding uh, the, the basket of bread, as it were, and saying, oh, you've come for more bread. No, he's generous. He's generous. He knows. He knows. Without him, you'll starve. So he's come. Now there's a uh, come to provide for you. Now it's important, as we'll see from the next scene, how you approach him. So here's the second truth I want you to see from the section as we continue through Mark 8. The way you approach Jesus 
determines what you receive from Jesus. The way you approach him determines what you receive from him. So now we're going to see a group of people who thinks they have all the answers. The Pharisees, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Look at his response. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. The way you approach Jesus determines what you receive from him. So look at how they approach him. They approach him. All the verbs associated with the Pharisees are are confrontational. Uh, When it says they they came and began to argue, that verb is really uh, the way, uh, it's the same word for march out. It's almost a military term. They marched out against him, right? They want to call him into question. So they march out and they begin to argue with him, seeking. Uh, It's it's not the sense of, hey, uh, seek the Lord and you'll find. It's really an accusatory kind of seeking. It's a demanding from him a sign from heaven to test him it's very similar to um to when jesus is being tempted in the wilderness and and the, uh, satan is tempting him and and jesus says do not put the lord your god to the test well this is that's exactly what they're doing god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble mark h12 records for all of us to see the response of god to the proud He sighs deeply in his spirit. Humility is the only means by which you can approach Jesus. And humility is the only means by which you can become more like Jesus. I believe all of us are being made more and more either into the image of Jesus or or more and more into the image of Satan. To be more and more in the image of Jesus and begin to have your character formed to his character. Remember, uh, suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. The kind of faith that uh, abides is humility. A humble dependence upon him for daily bread, for example. And pride is the way of the enemy. And pride is the way that you'll be made into the image of Satan. Thomas Watson, the Puritan author, said, a humble sinner is in a better condition than a proud angel. So life in Christ begins with humble repentance, knowing I'm a great sinner, and in gratitude knowing he is a great Savior. You see, what pride does is pride, which is in all of our hearts, is what we're born with, with, with pride. It inverses the relationship, placing you in a position to make demands of God that he must then obey. Pride is to be thoroughly blind. They demand a sign and suggesting, hey, if you provide some sort of sign, then we will believe. Well, did they believe when he healed the paralytic? Did they believe when he healed the man with the withered hand? Did they believe when he healed the leper? Will they believe when he rises from the grave? This scene provides what I can only call a terrifying four-word phrase that tells us what the ultimate response of God is to the proud. And it's right here in verse 13. Here's the terrifying four-word phrase. And he left them he left them he departed from them there's nothing nothing more terrifying than the thought that Jesus will leave but that's the eternal destiny of the proud that he departs He got into the boat again and went to the other side. 
Well, now we'll come to the next scene and from verses 14 to 21 get our third and last point. Oh God, I pray, I pray right now that we are a humble people and not a proud people. Verse 14, now they had, got, now they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat and he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So here's the third point for our consideration. You want to pay careful attention to the questions asked by Jesus and the warnings given by him pay careful attention to the questions asked by jesus and the warnings given by him so we want to see uh this conversation that in which jesus gives warnings and asks questions of his disciples in the boat in the context of what's just happened with the proud pharisees that he departed from them and then he gives them a warning and uh they go back to talking about the bread so uh, just so you see that jesus gives them a significant sober straightforward urgent warning and it just sort of goes over their heads and so then he has to come back and begin to ask them questions do you see what's going on right now do you understand do you not yet understand so he warns them start with the warning watch out beware these are um, these are uh, strong words in the original Greek he's saying pay attention listen to what I'm saying watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod so a couple of observations about his warning first of all Pharisees and those that followed Herod are not two groups of people that we would commonly associate with one another I mean, for the most part in that time, in that day, they didn't want anything to do with each other. I mean, Pharisees did not uh, have much to do with Herodians, and Herod and his followers didn't have a lot to do with the Pharisees. I mean, you can just see from what we've already studied through the Gospel of Mark that those approaches to life are on opposite ends of the spectrum, as it were, right? I mean, the Pharisees are all about trying to, uh, in, in their perspective, knowing the law, obeying the law, uh, they're religious and they're moral. And then we've gotten a glimpse into Herod and his, his crowd, haven't we? That overtly sinful and ungodly uh, scene in Herod's palace when John the Baptist's head's cut off and brought to him on a platter, right? But Jesus says... There's something that they have in common, and it's very important that you hear the warning. The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, he's been feeding the 5,000, and he's, so he's using the terminology that, of, of, of bread. And, and I believe what he's getting at is what they have in common. Here's the warning, is that they're both, though their outward behavior seems to have such distinctions inwardly. Remember, it's what is inside a person that defiles is pride is pride the pharisees were seemingly moral and religious herod and his crowd were seemingly so immoral or really were immoral and while they seem like they're different groups what they have in common is pride both groups were so very proud and utterly convinced that their approach to life was correct But what they have in common, as we'll see as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, is that these groups will work together in the joint effort of crucifying Jesus. The ultimate result of pride is unbelief. 
So again, we're, we're studying through Mark, and these questions are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Do you not remember? Do you not understand? These are questions that are important for you to ask, for me to ask of my own life. Do I live like a Pharisee who knows Scripture, knows the, quote, right answer, but my heart is actually against Jesus? And in my pride, I'm building my own kingdom, or do I have a heart like the Herodians who live a life that doesn't consider eternal things? A life without much reflection. Well, pride is the common ingredient, right? Now, let's look carefully for a moment at this conversation. And what you'll see, and this is, this is very common to our hearts, is the disciples in the boat have a worry and a concern. And, and, and they're so worried and concerned about it they're not seeing something of much greater significance. Verse 14, they had forgotten to bring bread. They only had one loaf with them in the boat. So what's this scenario created? Hey, you know, this is in that time and place. Again, there's not a Walmart on every corner. They're in the boat. They're going to go on a long journey. And now they're worried. We don't have enough bread. We didn't pack enough. We're going to run out. So that's their concern. Jesus cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In other words, you need to be worried about something much more important than are we going to have enough to eat. It's it's the distinction of they've got physical concern. Jesus has a spiritual warning to give them. But now, after he gives the warning, they go back to discussing with one another of the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus is aware of this. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread. Now let's pause for a moment, see what we've already had before us for Mark 8. Why would they be worried they would run out of bread? Right? How many loaves did we have when we, when we fed 5,000 plus. They kind of mumble the answer. Or how many, how many baskets were left over, right? Well, 12. There's one for each of us. Yeah, we remember that. And, and, and then just not long ago, I fed 4,000. How much was left over? Well, we had seven. Is that right? What's the point? We never run out of bread. You're never going to run out of bread. I'm going to provide for you. I am sufficient. I mean, on one hand, we would say, how clueless is this group of men in this boat to be worried and worked up and anxious and nervous and frustrated about the fact that they have only one loaf? If Jesus can provide for thousands with a few loaves, do you think he can handle providing for, say, the 12 of you with one? Jesus is going to be with you. He's going to provide what you need. But the real concern that Jesus has is that they're so worried about the bread situation that they don't understand the danger that's inside of them. Do you still not understand? You still not see? Think about what these men in the boat have already experienced. Just in the boat, right? Jesus has calmed the storm. They saw him step out of the boat and heal the demoniac. They got back in the boat, went to the other side, and they saw him as he healed the woman with the issue of bleeding, raised Jairus' daughter, confront the false teaching, the defilements on the outside of us and not on the inside, and he corrects. Walk into the Gentile regions to welcome the outsiders, feed thousands of people multiple times, raise the dead, heal the mute and the deaf man, Right? And they still don't understand. And we're in the same boat. And I intended the pun. Think about what Jesus has done for us. He's actually done, in the fullness of time, as we can see, things even greater than what they had experienced. He's offered his body. He shed his blood. 
in our place. In the children's video, had uh, some of the children give us Romans 5, 8 in, in multiple languages just to underscore the fact of what we're learning that the gospel is for all nations. But that verse in particular, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because of that, we can trust him in season of plenty, but we can also trust him in the midst of a pandemic. He is good. He's faithful. He is strong. He's kind. Now I can look back in my life over these two months and think of so many times that what was on my mind, what was on my heart was something the equivalent of, do I have enough bread? <laughs> I'm so anxious about temporary things. Why are you discussing the bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Do you not see? Do you not hear? Beware. If you're going to be worried about something right now, worry about this. Worry about the leaven of the Pharisees. That you have some sort of understanding of the scripture. You can quote it. You know about God, but you don't know him. Beware. Beware that. That is serious. Beware of the leaven of Herod. That you just kind of casually and thoughtlessly go through life. And life for you is sort of about entertainment. <laughs> and so-called pleasure. Now, if that's true, either one of those things, here's what's I think I can say with confidence this morning in light of this scripture. Whether you live with the leaven that plays itself out like the Pharisees or you live with the leaven of pride that plays itself out like Herod, you are deeply unsatisfied and tremendously burdened. And not yet been deeply satisfied and released or liberated or set free. Now we all tend to be slow learners. But let's see from the scripture again that Jesus alone can sufficiently provide what you need. And he can do it again and again and again. Christ crucified once for sinners. But his grace is given daily and in an ongoing way. So again, don't be hesitant to, in humility, come to him for help as he's done for you perhaps in the past, but now you need his help right now. And saying that again from the scripture, the way you approach Jesus determines what you receive from him. And let's pay careful attention to the questions asked by him and the warnings given by him. Do you not yet understand? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. I thank you for what we see just here from Mark 8, that Jesus is compassionate and Jesus is powerful. Jesus sighs deeply over our lostness. I'm warned that Jesus... God, you oppose the proud, but you do give grace to the humble. I learn about myself from the scripture that I am forgetful. I am hard-hearted. I am slow to learn. So we remember again and again that while we were still weak at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That you've shown your love for us. You've shown your love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. May that to our souls be daily bread. In Jesus' name, amen.